2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceive those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. As we hand over to Hendre, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word that makes you known and makes us wise for salvation. We thank you for Hendre's preparation and we pray that you would speak through him and through your word that we've just read to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Hendre. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to church. It's a great privilege for me to be up here this morning. Uh, my name is Hendre, and I'm so thankful that we are able to still meet together this week, even though it might be virtually. For those of you who were with us last week, if you're able to think back beyond all the changes this past week entailed, you might be able to remember that we started a new series at church looking at two Thessalonians. And as we looked at chapter one, I asked you whether you might be willing in this series to embrace the awkwardness with me, that as we deal with some uncomfortable portions of God's word, whether we would sit in that together and see what God might be saying to us. And so last week, as we dealt with things like the awkward reality that God's people suffer, 
the uncomfortable truth that our God will judge our family and friends. And this call to be worthy of the gospel, which seems to oppose the gospel by grace. And as we looked at those things, we saw how Paul was comforting and encouraging a church in persecution. And so, despite the awkwardness of owning our faith, the awkwardness of some portions of scripture, we could have confidence to own our faith as our primary identity in all circumstances, knowing that our God is faithful and would equip us to endure whatever suffering might come. In chapter 2 this week, we see some more specific details about the situation of the Thessalonian church. Not only was this church facing the outside threat of persecution, but there was a specific internal situation which Paul was seeking to address. There was false teaching, and specifically relating to the day of the Lord. I absolutely think eschatology and this study of the end times is an important thing for us as a church to think about. I think our eschatology ultimately shapes how we live in the here and now, and having an eschatology which is either over or under-realized can be hugely detrimental into how we live out our faith. But having said that, whilst Paul in this passage addresses a specific false teaching to do with the day of the Lord, I don't think that is the main point of this passage for us today. Paul was speaking into a very particular context, a context where the church was confused that the day of the Lord had already happened, that Christ had returned. And that is not the situation we are in today. And so, I think for us, For the church today, this passage is rather a message about false teaching. And so as we look at this passage and the specific example of this false teaching on this eschatological subject, we will draw out some principles as to how we might be able to stand firm in the face of any false teaching. Don't be deceived. Stand firm. Don't be deceived. As I go quickly through the first section of today's passage, we will see three reasons why in this specific instance, Paul tells the church not to be deceived. Verse three, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, really is a summary of this passage. And this church was in disarray. Paul was writing to encourage and comfort them and to help them navigate this tricky situation. And his message was just that. Don't be deceived. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, which we had read to us, outlines the nature of this false teaching. That Christ's return had already happened. That the Thessalonian church had somehow been left behind, been forgotten by God. But also, there was rumours that this teaching was actually from Paul. And so I think it's understandable why the church would have been tempted to take this seriously. The source of information, the source of news has a huge impact on how we receive it. I think in this COVID era here in Adelaide, we know that all too well. When Stephen Marshall, our Premier, appear on our TV screens, when they start giving us instructions about what we can do and what we might no longer be able to do, we take them seriously. We submit to their authority rightly and trust their judgment. But if I was to start going around telling people they could no longer go to Burnside or 
no longer go to their primary school or that everyone now had to just stay at home 24-7, no one would believe me. The source of the message matters. And so I think we have to be sympathetic to this church. To be sympathetic that had this been from Paul, it is something that they would have wanted to take seriously. But Paul assures the Thessalonian church that this is not from them. And he goes on from that to actually give them three reasons why they need not be deceived. Why they need not believe this false teaching. And so as we go quickly through these reasons, we see the first one in verses 3 and 4. Paul assures the Thessalonian church that the day of the Lord has not yet come because this rebellion had not yet occurred. And this man of lawlessness, which we read about in this chapter, had not yet been revealed. Before the day of the Lord, there will be this rebellion and this man of lawlessness. And given that neither of those had yet happened, they could have confidence that Christ could not have already returned. I think it's worth seeing here that Paul is not concerned with the details of this rebellion. He's not concerned with the details of the identity of this man of lawlessness, but rather just with the fact that these things will happen and that it will be clear when they do, that this man will be revealed. And so as tempting as it might be to try and speculate as to the details of who that might be or what that might look like, the reality is chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians doesn't make it clear. It doesn't give us enough information to make that conclusion. And the second reason we then see in verse 5, that Paul says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Although the church might have been tempted to believe this message supposedly from Paul, he tells them that what he had previously told them was enough for them to know that this one was not true, that they had been given enough information to be able to discern whether this teaching was right or wrong. And as it did not line up with what they had previously heard and believed, they could know that this was not true. Verses 6 and 7 then go on to give us the third reason, and that is that this man of lawlessness was still being held back, still being restrained. And he would be until that time which he was revealed. Paul assures the Thessalonian church that although um, there is lawlessness all around them, though the effects of sin and brokenness can clearly be seen, that this man of lawlessness's reign had not yet become. What exactly that would look like is again not Paul's focus. But instead, Paul focuses on God's sovereignty and power in that situation. Whoever or whatever might be holding that man back, the man of lawlessness back, is not stated. But whoever it might be, we can trust that God is sovereignly using that, them, or himself to do that. And... Although as we go through the rest of the verses up to verse 12, we see that this man of lawlessness will have power, we also see that his power will pale in comparison to Christ. When announcing his appearance in verse 8, Paul follows it up immediately with the reality of the fate of this man of lawlessness. This man of lawlessness will be overthrown by Jesus. And what's more, but we see that he will be overthrown by the breath of his mouth that he will be destroyed simply by Christ's appearing. 
Christ is far more powerful than this man of lawlessness which will come. In the end, it's not even a close call. So the church need not be afraid or worried. We also see the additional comfort of who it is that will be deceived by this man of lawlessness. That it will be those who are perishing, those who have not believed, those who delight in wickedness. And so the church could have confidence that they would not be deceived by this man of lawlessness. Verse 11 and 12 then can seem like a pretty startling idea to our Western way of thinking. This idea that God is responsible for these people believing these lies. But in reality, throughout Scripture, we see the reality of God's sovereignty and it playing out in some unexpected ways, whether it be God putting a lying spirit in the, amount, in the mouth of false prophets and kings, whether it be God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or in this passage, God sending them a delusion so that they might believe the lie. The reality is God is sovereign over all. And so God even uses sovereignly the consequences of sin in his punishment of sinners. I think it's important that we read this verse in context, that verse 11 comes after verse 10. That is, we see first that they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. And because of this, because they refuse to love the truth, God sends them this delusion. It is that idea again, which we saw very briefly last week, of God giving people over to their sin and their desires, giving them over to face the consequences of their sin. As these people have not believed the truth, God allows them to fall for the lie. As a punishment for their disobedience, And that is why they are condemned. But Paul assures the Thessalonians the day of the Lord has not yet come. And so there was still time for people to repent. There was still time for the acceptance of the offer of grace. And there was still time for others to experience the mercy God desires to show his creation. And so Paul tells the believers to stand firm. As we head into verses 13 to 16, we will see how Paul turns away from the specifics of this false teaching and points instead to this hope, to the three reasons why the Thessalonian church and us can stand firm, even in the face of false teaching. We will see the comfort in the gospel, how because of clarity in God's word, And because of the confidence we've been given to go on, we can even face false teaching. Comfort in the gospel. I don't know how lockdown has been in your household. I'm sure for some of us, it has been quite a stressful time. Whether it be the stress of the virus, the stress about being confined to our homes, or the stress of managing household relationships while we're all on top of each other. I know Jess and I have certainly been finding comfort in a few things, whether that be the comfort of being able to go to work or even church in trackies, finding comfort in a few more indulgences when it comes to food. But we've also found comfort in the safety of our home, of knowing that if we stay here and keep to ourselves, 
we should be okay. But in verse 13 and 14, Paul points to a far greater hope than any of these. We saw earlier on in verse 2 how Paul urged the Thessalonian church not to become easily unsettled or alarmed. And so here in verses 13 and 14, he tells them why and how they are able to do that. And this is because of the comfort that is in the gospel. Verse 13 starts with that refrain which we saw last week of, but we ought always thank God for you. No doubt Paul trying to remind the Thessalonian church of what he said in that opening chapter, reminding them again of what he had heard about their faith, and in so doing, reminding them that they are indeed those who have believed in the truth, that they are God's. And so he comforts them that they will not be deceived by the man of lawlessness. As Paul continues in the rest of verse 13 and 14, we see a quite succinct summary of the gospel. But we ought always thank you, God, for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in him. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Using this summary of the gospel, Paul is reminding this Thessalonian church who they are. He reminds them of who they are, what their identity is as those who are in Christ. He reminds them who they are because of the gospel. Look with me carefully as we see all the different things Paul manages to pack into these two short verses. We see, because of the gospel, Paul calls them brothers and sisters. That is, Paul reminding them that through the gospel, they are part of God's family, that they are God's children, and that they need not stand alone. Paul reminds them that they are loved by the Lord. He calls them chosen by God. That is, that God chose them to be saved. To be saved, that this saving work will be completed on the day of the Lord. He also reminds them that through the gospel they have received the Holy Spirit, which is not only at work sanctifying them, but is also the seal of this salvation. He reminds them that they are saved by faith, not by works, not by anything they can do. And finally, in verse 14, he reminds them that through this gospel, they get to share in the glory of Christ, both now in being counted a co-heir with Christ, but even more fully on that day when he returns. And the same is true for us, for those who have believed the truth of the gospel. We need not be easily unsettled or alarmed. We don't need to be rattled or feel like a whole world is shaking, whether that be because of false teaching, whether that be because of a tricky part of God's word, or whether it be in the midst of a global pandemic. We can take comfort in all these situations in the gospel, knowing that, like the Thessalonian church, through the gospel, we have been made part of God's family. We've been shown that we are loved. We have been chosen by God. We have and will be saved. We have received the Holy Spirit. We have been saved by faith, not by works and that we get to share in Christ's victory and glory. What an amazing comfort that is. What an amazing assurance. 
I don't know what kind of person you are when it comes to instruction manuals. Um, there are those of us that read instruction manuals multiple times before ever getting started that lay everything out neatly in order. Or there are those of us who, like me, think an instruction manual is more of a backup plan, of a thing you turn to when you're faced with disaster where something doesn't seem to be going to plan. I have the habit of just trying to have a go and um, seeing how far I can get. And inevitably, this doesn't always go perfectly to plan. Um, we own a bread machine at home and um, it makes delicious bread, but for the most part, it is Jess that is always the one who operates it, who puts in the ingredients, pushes the right button and out pops a fresh bread a couple of hours later. But when I tried, I tried to use the instruction manual, but if I'm honest, I'm not even familiar with the instruction manual, so I didn't know what bread recipe I was meant to be following, I didn't know what size bread I was meant to be trying to get, or what level of crust, like, who knew there were so many options, but even more than that, I didn't even know what all the ingredients meant, like, who knows what bread improver is? And so to be honest, the recipe book, the instruction manual, wasn't even all that helpful. If someone was standing next to me and telling me to add in cream of tartar or to not add yeast, I might be tempted to believe them because I don't know what I'm doing. But Paul assures the church here in Thessalonica that they can stand firm by holding to the teachings Paul and his companions have passed on to them. That is that they can find clarity in God's word to stand firm in the face of false teaching. That they can hold fast to the truth. Verse 15 says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. We saw earlier in verse 5 how Paul told them that he had already previously given them enough instruction to be able to discern about the day of the Lord, to discern that this particular teaching they were facing was false. And the same is true for us. We have been given God's word not just those through Paul, but the whole Bible. And that is enough. That is sufficient for us to discern the truth, to resist false teaching, to stand firm. I'm not saying that the Bible is merely an instruction manual. It's so much more than that. But just as with that oil-stained bread machine manual, our Bibles should be worn and well used. If I use that manual more often, I will grow to be more familiar with it. I will be know what recipe to turn to. I will know what the different ingredients actually mean. And over time, I might even get to the point where rather than producing a bread that looks like a flat and floury mess, I get a beautifully warm bread that just melts in your mouth. And the same is true, I think, when it comes to God's word, that the more time we spend in it, the more familiar we get with it, the more helpful it can be to our lives. That the more we spend time in it, the quicker we are to know where to go when we are faced with questions or tricky situations, or even to, at times, know the truth without having to refer back to God's word. Now, the Bible obviously doesn't address every single particular situation or every explicit topic. But we can have confidence that God has given us enough 
to be able to use the principles we see about his character and instruction to discern with the help of his spirit what is best and to be able to detect and discern what is false about what we are being told. And so, just as the Thessalonian church would have been able to discern the truth of this false teaching they had reminded themselves, had they reminded themselves of Paul's word, so we will be able to discern the truth if we remind ourselves of God's word, if we are immersed in God's word. And so I want to encourage you guys to dive into God's word, to, over these next few days in lockdown, make the most of the opportunity to really be immersed in it, to embrace all of God's word, remind yourself of gospel truths, but also delve into the trickier parts. Why don't you call someone and chat to them about what you've been learning from God's word so that you two might be mutually encouraged? We can take comfort that we have been given the Spirit to guide us as we deal with God's Word, and that we have been given the church to help us interpret it correctly, and that God has given us enough to be able to discern what is right and true. And so, Paul concludes this chapter with a prayer in verses 16 and 17, as we see we have been given the confidence to go on. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us, gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Paul reminds the Thessalonians and us that in God's grace we have been given an eternal encouragement and a hope which is good. That is that our sovereign God had not abandoned the Thessalonian church or forgotten about them, and neither will he abandon or forget about us. We have a God who is sovereign even in the midst of confusion and chaos, a God who has given us an eternal and secure hope, an assurance that he will bring his plans to fruition. We have a God who will return, who will defeat his enemies, who will end all suffering, anxiety, and chaos, and who will reunite those who believe in him to himself. And so the Thessalonian church could have confidence to continue trusting God, not worrying about God's faithfulness, but entrusting that to him, and just focusing on being faithful in what God has called them to do, to do and speak good. And so that is good news for us, whether we face false teaching or whether we face this pandemic. We have been given an eternal hope, a good hope, And so we can entrust God with his part of things, on his faithfulness. We can trust him to fulfill his promises and instead just focus on our part, on doing good and on speaking good. Even when we're here in lockdown. How can we be doing good to each other as a church? How can we be speaking good to each other and to our friends who might not have this comfort and hope. And so, the reality for us as the church in Adelaide is that like the church in Thessalonians, we can have comfort in the gospel. We too can find clarity in God's word 
And we too have been given this confidence to go on. So, whether it is a world challenging us to compromise on the sexual ethics of the Bible, whether it is people asserting that Jesus cannot be the only way, or whether it be a world telling you that you need to be fearful in the midst of a pandemic, we need not be alarmed or unsettled, as Paul said. Because we serve a sovereign God, a loving God, who has given us and will continue to give us all we need so that we not be deceived, but so that we can stand firm. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and for your word. We thank you for this chapter of 2 Thessalonians and for um, the example we see of your faithfulness to your people. We thank you that you have given us all we need in your word that we are able to discern the truth so that we might not be deceived. And God, I thank you that you have given us all that we need to stand firm, that you have given us the comfort and security which is found in your gospel of grace. And God, I pray that you would help us to have the confidence to go on, to have the confidence to go on no matter what false teaching or challenge we are facing from the world, that we would have the confidence to go on even in this pandemic that we would trust you, that we would trust your faithfulness to your promises, and that we, in turn, would be faithful in what you have called us to do, to speak and to do good in all circumstances. Amen.